Section thirty three of Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph by Francis Sheridan. Volume three continued. September the twenty fifth. I have sent the remains of my venerable parent down to Sydney Castle, there to be interred with her ancestors. I wrote my brother an account of her death on the day it happened, but have as yet received no answer. Unnatural son! but I will not reproach him. Some accident might have prevented his writing immediately on the receipt of my letter. He never entirely forsook the duty he owed his mother, but he has of late been quite estranged from us. His wife, vain, weak, and imperious, governs him totally. I must now begin to look about me for a place of abode suited to my present circumstances. My whole income would not pay more than half the rent of these lodgings in which I have lived with my dear mother. My poor Patty, I am grieved for her. I begged of her to seek another mistress who might be able to reward her merit and provide for her as she deserves, but the worthy, affectionate girl told me it would break her heart if I talked of parting with her. You must have a servant of some sort, madam, said she. Why must not I do as well as another? If I were able to make you a proper return, Patty, said I, you should not leave me, but I cannot afford to pay a servant of your abilities as you deserve, and I must be my own maid for the future. Never, never, madam, cried the honest creature, bursting into tears, while I have hands to serve you, let me but attend to you and the two dear children. I desire nothing, I want nothing. Your goodness has all along supplied me so, that I am sure I have clothes enough to serve me during my life, and if I could not put up with the same humble way of living that my mistress does, sure I should be a presumptuous wretch. My tears thanked the grateful girl, and taking her by the hand I told her that I would not talk of parting for the present, but when anything worth her acceptance offered I should then insist on her embracing it. I am determined to retire to some village at a distance from London, and either to take a little cottage to myself, or board with my children at some farmhouse as I shall find most convenient. Fifty pounds a year will be but a slender support for three persons brought up in affluence. My little ones indeed will not now be sensible of the change, and by the time they are grown up they will be so inured to their homely board that they will not, I hope, aspire after what cannot consistently, perhaps with virtue, lie within their reach. October the 27th After paying the expenses of my mother's funeral, discharging our lodgings and some other demands, I find my purse will be so extremely reduced that I shall have but barely enough to keep out want till my small income becomes due to me. I must therefore for the present defer putting my scheme into execution, as I am not qualified to undertake a journey with my little family, especially as I am as yet uncertain what place to fix on for my residence. Neither will I afford my brother, though I have no reason to expect anything from him, a father pretence for reproaching me by giving him room to say I left London without consulting him or waiting for his return to it. 
i shall therefore look out for a lodging of a small price where i will conceal myself from everybody that knows me and wait for sir george's arrival october the twenty eighth how happy you make me my ever dear friend by your approbation of my conduct since my receiving your last packet which came to my hand late last night i am better reconciled to my present lot than i was before i heard from you i could not do otherwise you say after my solemn promise given to miss birchill than use my utmost endeavours to promote her marriage with mr falkland true i could not but i wish you had entered more into my sentiments in regard to those punctilios which you tell me you think might have been got over if that young woman had been out of the question i could not help smiling at your wish unchristian as it was but my dear if that were to happen do you think mr falkland so void of reason nay of feeling as after all that has passed to persevere or if he did that i could be so mean as to owe the very bread that i and my children should eat to his generosity would you my cecilia wish to see your friends so humbled tis not in the power even of the cold hard hand of poverty itself to dash me so low as that would do but where is the need of forming resolutions or even making declarations about what never can happen i see notwithstanding that you think my heart has again done itself some violence you know that heart too well for me to attempt to hide from you its secret workings i own to you honestly i now feel my own unhappiness in its full extent i look back and take a survey of the past and cannot help thinking that i have had the most wayward fate allotted me that ever woman had disappointment in a first love has i think been ever accounted a grief scarce surmountable even by time but this can only be the case where the heart extremely vulnerable by nature like miss birchill's suffers itself to be so entirely immersed in that passion that all the other duties of life are swallowed up in it and where an indolent turn of mind a want of rational avocations and perhaps of a new object all contribute to indulge and confirm the disease this you know was not my case i loved tis true but it was with temperance and though my disappointment afflicted me it did not subdue me i got the better of it i think i got the better of it even before i married but sure i am i totally conquered all remembrance of it after i became a wife i then laid down a new scheme of happiness and was for a time in possession of it how i was thrown from this is still bitter to remembrance you well know what i suffered when i found myself deprived of my husband's love and suspected of a crime at which my soul shrunk but it pleased the just god to deliver me from this heavy misfortune and i think the happiest days of my marriage were those which i passed with mr arnold after our reunion then it was i was thoroughly sensible that the heart can love a second time truly and ardently but i was soon again plunged into affliction by the death of a husband endeared to me more than ever 
by his misfortunes. My grief for him was proportionate to my love, yet, my friend, as time is a universal conqueror, it might have healed this wound as well as the former one, and a few, a very few years, would perhaps have disposed me to return Mr. Falkland's still unabated passion, if a variety of circumstances had not interposed that strongly forbade our union. Convinced as I was of this, I acted agreeably to the dictates both of my reason and my conscience in persuading Mr. Falkland to make Miss Birchall his wife. I should have been grieved and mortified had he rejected her, and I had determined never to have seen him more. Yet how deceitful is the human heart! This very act which I laboured with so much assiduity to accomplish, and on the accomplishment of which I had founded I know not how a sort of contentment for myself, has been the very means of destroying what little peace of mind I was beginning to taste before. Sure that man was born to torment me in a variety of ways. If I was disappointed in my early love, I had, however, duty, and a consciousness of what I then thought superior worth to support me. If on his account I suffered cruel and injurious aspersions, the innocence of my own self-acquitted heart bore me up under it. But he has at length found the way to punish me, without leaving me any resource. My pride is of no use. He has raised himself in my esteem superior to everything. His whole behaviour so generous, so candid, a love so disinterested, so fervent, what noble, what uncommon proofs he has given me of it! and at length what a triumphant sacrifice he has made of that overruling passion to the sober call of reason and humanity. He has left me, my dear, to gaze after him with grateful admiration, and sometimes perhaps to sigh that our fates rendered it impossible for us to meet. But if I do sometimes sigh, it is not at the advantages of fortune which I might have enjoyed with him. No, no, surrounded as I am with distress, I do not envy Miss Birchall's affluence or splendour. If that motive could have had weight with me, I might have been mean enough not to have acted as I have done. Tis the qualities of the man's mind I esteem. I think our souls have something congenial in them, and that we were originally designed for each other. And if I believed the doctrine that teaches us that there are little officious spirits that preside over the actions of men, I should think that our two evil geniuses laid their heads together, in conjunction with Miss Birchall's active demon, to thwart and cross all our measures. I have nothing now left but to pray for the happiness of one whose lot in this life he has suffered me to determine and to beseech heaven that he may never stand in that fatal predicament which Sir George with such outrageous barbarity marled out in his vile letter. I now return to myself and to my present state, which I think I may say brings up the rear of my misfortunes. Let the chastisement stop here, and I shall bow me to it with resignation. 
october the twenty-ninth ah my cecilia what an aggravation is here to the already too deep regret i feel on mr falkland's account his triumph over me is now complete in sorting my mother's papers as i am to leave these lodgings to-morrow i found that letter which mr falkland wrote to my brother george from bath you may remember i told you my mother had in her resentment flung it to sir george and that as it happened to fall on the ground he had quitted the room in a passion without taking it up my mother i suppose when she cooled laid it by though i dare say she never looked into it afterwards read it and see by what a fatality we have been governed mr falkland's letter to sir george biddulph bath may the ninth seventeen o three how you mortify me my dear biddulph when you tell me of the happiness i lose by staying so long at bath the ladies are impatient to see me say you ah sir george thou hast spoke better of me than i deserve i fear i am sadly out of humour with myself at present i have got into a very foolish sort of a scrape here my wrist is quite well and i should have thrown myself at miss biddulph's feet before now but to tell you a secret my virtue not being proof against temptation i have been intercepted tis but a slight lapse however a flying affair neither my honour nor my heart in the question a little vagrant cupid has contented himself with picking my pocket just lightly fluttering through my breast and away are you fallen so low as that falkland say you to buy the favour of the fair no george no not quite so contemptible as that neither and yet faith i did buy it too for it cost me three hundred pounds but the lady to whom i am obliged knows nothing of this part of her own history at least i hope so for my credit's sake the case in short is this an old gouty officer and his wife a very notable dame a fine woman too happened to lodge in the same house with me the man came hither to get rid of his aches the lady of her money and her virtue if she has any for she is eternally at the card-tables under the conduct of this hopeful guide came a niece of the husband's an extremely fine girl innocent too i believe and the best dancer i ever saw i don't know how it happened but she took a fancy to me which upon my word and i'm sure you have no doubts of me i was far from wishing to improve you know i always despise the mean triumph of gaining a heart for which i could not give another in return i saw with pain her growing inclination for me but as we lived in the same house and met every day in the rooms it was impossible for me to avoid her as much as i wished to do the aunt i found had her eyes upon me and took some pains to promote a liking on my side i saw her design and was so much upon my guard that she who i soon found was an adept in love matters almost despaired of gaining her ends the young lady's inclination however seemed to increase a pair of fine blue eyes told me so every day and i was upon the point of flying to avoid the soft contagion when an accident happened that totally overthrew all my good resolutions 
I had not seen the young lady for two or three days, and I inquired for her, and her aunt answered with a mysterious smile, "'She is ill, poor thing. Why don't you look in upon her and ask her how she does?' I replied, "'If the lady will permit me, I will do myself that honour, and intended literally to have kept my word by just asking her at her chamber door how she did.' "'You are very cruel,' said the aunt. "'Would you persuade me that you don't know the girl is in love with you?' "'Oh, your servant, madam, if you think me vain, I thank you for the reprimand.' "'Come, come,' said she, "'this is all affectation. We'll drink tea with her this evening.' "'Upon my word,' said I, "'if I am to believe what you say, I think you ought not to desire me.' I am not blind to the young lady's merit, but I am so unfortunate as not to have it in my power to make such returns as she deserves. I found the occasion required my being serious. "'If you have not love,' said she, "'you may at least have a little complacence. Was there ever such a barbarian not to go and see a woman that is dying for him? I promise to bring you, and she expects you.' "'What is the pretty creature afraid of?' patting my cheek. "'I'll stay by it all the while.' There was no withstanding this. I promised to wait on her. She knocked at my door about six o'clock, and looking in asked if the coy Narcissus was ready. I went with her, and she led me directly to her niece's chamber. The young lady looked pale and languishing, but very pretty. I was really grieved to see her, and inquired with an unaffected concern after her health. The tea-things were set, and I tried to force something like conversation, but I believe I was rather formal. When we had done tea, the aunt looked at her watch, started off her chair, said she had outstayed her appointment with the party she was to meet at cards, and turning to me, "'I hope, sir, you will have the charity to stay with my niece.' and then hurried out of the room. I begged leave to hand her to her chair, intending to take that opportunity of slipping away, and resolved to quit the house the next morning. But the determined gypsy was prepared for this motion, and insisted that I should not stir, thrust me back from the door, which she shut, and flew downstairs. What was to become of me now, George? My situation was dangerous and really critical. To be short, I forgot my prudence and found the young lady's heart too, too tender. I never felt remorse before. I never had cause. I accuse myself of indiscretion, but I have not the aggravating addition to my fault of oaths and promises to fly in my face. I made none. Love, foolish love, did all, and led a willing victim to his altar, who asked nothing in return for the sacrifice she offered, and received nothing but unavailing repentance on my side. I know not anything now that would give me so much pleasure as to find that the girl hated me heartily, though I have given her no cause. A just reparation I cannot make her, everything forbids that thought. I do not consider myself as free, but if I were so, I am not a seducer, and therefore do not think myself bound to carry my penitence to such lengths. The damned aunt has been the serpent. And here let me explain to you what I call buying the lady's favour. 
"'You must know the aunt one night, the greatest part of which she had spent at hazard, lost two hundred pounds at least. She told me so the next morning, and with tears in her eyes besought me in the most earnest manner to lend her that sum. She said she should be undone if her husband were to know it, and that she would pay me in a very few days, as she had as much due to her from different people who had lost to her at play.' though our short acquaintance could hardly warrant her making such a request i nevertheless did not hesitate but gave her the money directly she meant indeed to pay me but it was in a different coin and this i suppose was the price she set on the unhappy girl's honour my reflections on this unlucky affair make me very grave i have explained my situation to the young lady and express my concern at not having it in my power to be any other than a friend to her. She blames her own weakness and her aunt's conduct, but does not reproach me. She cannot with justice, yet I wish she would, for then I should reproach myself less. "'Tis a foolish business, and I must get off as handsomely as I can. Prithee, bid off, say something to encourage me, and put me into more favour with myself." you have often been my confessor but i never wanted absolution so much as now nor ever was so well entitled to it for i am really full of penitence and look so mortified you would pity me i am ashamed of having been surprised into a folly i who ought to have been upon my guard knowing the natural impetuosity of my own temper I must not conclude without telling you that this very morning the precious aunt, instead of paying me the two hundred pounds she had of me before, very modestly requested I would oblige her with another hundred, to redeem a pair of diamond earrings that she had been obliged to part with, for the supply of some other necessary demands, and with abundance of smooth speeches she assured me in a fortnight she would pay me altogether, having notes to that value which would then become due to her. I was such a booby as to give it to her. Why, fare it well, I never expect to see a shilling of it. She thinks perhaps there is value received for it. Vile woman! The affair, fortunately for us all, has not taken wind, and for me the names of both aunt and niece may ever stand enrolled amongst those of chaste matrons and virgins. The family quits this place soon, as the old gentleman is better. I thank you for your care in relation to my house. I hope to take possession of it in a week or ten days. You are very good in fixing me so near yourself. Adieu. I am, etc. What do you think of this letter, my Cecilia? written in confidence to my brother. Mr. Falkland could not conceive it probable that anybody but Sir George should ever see it. He had no reason, therefore, to gloss over any of the circumstances. Had I seen it but in time! Oh, what anguish of heart might we all have been spared! Miss Birchall singly, as she ought, would have borne the punishment of her folly. My mother had not the patience to read this letter through. Nice and punctilious as her virtue was, she passed a censure on the crime in gloss, without admitting any palliating circumstance. But I blame her not. 
the excellence of her own morals made her scrupulous in weighing those of others she read the letter in a cursory way and is plain but half of it prepossessed as she was before by knowing the material point the account was given with levity at the first mention of the young lady then she understood he had bought her of her aunt there is a paragraph which looks like it and to be sure she attended not to the explanation fatal oversight she read not far enough to have this matter cleared up she took nothing but the bare facts into her account a young lady dishonoured her disgrace likely to be public then her tenderness for the man who had undone her and that man rejecting her and on the point of marrying another these were the only points of view in which my mother beheld the story her justice her humanity and her religion prompted her to act as she did and her conduct stands fully acquitted to my judgment though my heart must upon this full conviction of mr falkland's honour sigh at recollecting the past i know that the memory of my mother's own first disastrous love wrought strongly on her mind she was warm in her passions liable to deep impressions and always adhered strictly to those opinions she first imbibed her education had been severe and recluse and she had drawn all her ideas of mankind from her own father and mine who i have been told were both men of exemplary lives from all these considerations i must say again that i entirely acquit my dear mother in regard to her whole conduct however i have suffered by it october the thirtieth i am now fixed in a very humble habitation shall i own it to you my cecilia i was shocked at the change a room two pair of stairs high with a closet and a small indifferent parlour composed the whole of my apartment hither did my faithful patty my two children and myself remove this day it put us not to much trouble having nothing to take with us but our wearing apparel which is all the worldly goods of which i am now possessed when i wrote to lady v which was a day or two before my mother's death i mentioned not that she was then in so dangerous a way i know the generosity and good nature of that worthy woman but i have already been too much obliged to her to lay any fresh tax on her friendship which i am sure she would too readily pay if she were acquainted with my situation i shall therefore as long as i can defer acquainting her with my mother's death and when i do i shall not give her room to suspect that my brother has cast me off which i have now too much reason to believe he has otherwise sure in more than a fortnight he might have found time to write to me i neither expect ceremony nor tenderness from him but the occasion of my letter demanded some notice november the second patty has just now been informed that lady sarah biddulph is arrived in town she met one of their servants who told her that my brother is not come with her it seems they parted on the road he is gone to sydney castle which is now his and lady sarah chose to come to london she has i found been in london four days though she has not yet vouchsafed to send me any notice of her arrival 
she could not be at a loss where to find me as i left my direction at my former lodging in case of any letter or message coming from any of my friends though i desired the people of the house not to inform any indifferent visitants where i was to be found though george has in his turbulent way renounced me as his sister yet sure his wife whom i never disobliged ought not to depart so from humanity and common good breeding as not to inquire after the sister of her husband who has an occasion of grief so recent in which she ought to partake i shall not however take notice of this slight but am preparing to send patty to her with an inquiry after her health and to know when my brother is expected in town Patty is just returned from her embassy to Lady Sarah. I will give you the conversation she had with her. Patty sent in her message with great respect by a footman, and waited for her answer in the hall, though her pretty figure and genteel morning dress had induced the servant to ask her into the housekeeper's room. Lady Sarah was alone in the parlour, and desired her to be called to the door. "'So, young woman,' said she your mistress desires to know when sir george will be in town i am really surprised after the letter she received from him that she can fancy sir george means to concern himself about her do you know her business with him you are in your mistress's secrets i suppose i do not know madam answered patty what particular business my lady may have but i believe it would be a comfort to her to see her brother in her present melancholy circumstances i don't know that there is anything uncommonly melancholy in her circumstances replied the lady her mother's years and infirmities made her death a thing to be looked for i suppose your mistress is not in want my poor ingenuous patty said she blushed at the cruel indifference with which lady sarah spoke this not in immediate want madam i hope but your ladyship must needs think she is in a destitute way with two children and but fifty pounds a year in the world what do you mean woman cried lady sarah it is impossible but lady biddulph must have left money behind her sir george i am sure has got nothing but what she could not keep from him Patty answered, "'Lady Biddulph, madam, left no money behind her more than what was barely sufficient to defray some necessary expenses that occurred immediately after her death.' "'Well, and so your mistress, I suppose, after having behaved so ill as she has done to her brother, expects he should provide handsomely for her and her children—Arnold's children—for the rest of their lives.' i know not madam returned patty what my lady expectations are but i believe she would be very glad to see sir george before she goes out of town or at least inform him of her design what is her design pray asked lady sarah to retire into the country madam as she is not wherewithal to subsist on in london she can't do better i think said the lady where does she live now my poor maid who thought this question tended to the proud woman's calling on or at least sending to me made haste to inform her she lodges madam 
at a milliner's at the corner of the haymarket the left hand as you turn oh dear pray stop you need not be so particular i have no design of paying her a visit in her corner shop my only reason for inquiring was to know whether she had thought proper to keep those expensive lodgings her mother was in in expectation of sir george's continuing her in them my lady has no such view i believe madam well you may tell your lady that if she will go out of town with her children i will endeavour to prevail on sir george to allow her something he will not be in town this month so that she need not wait for his arrival she might if she would have been guided by her brother have been a credit to her friends instead of what she now is patty owns she was so full of indignation that she wished at that moment not to have been a servant that she might have reproached her with her hard-heartedness oh my dear these are the stings of poverty it is not the hard bed nor the homely board but the oppressive insolence of proud prosperity tis that only which can inflict a wound on the ingenuous mind as for that mean woman i despise her too much to suffer myself to be obliged to her she will endeavour to prevail on my brother if his own heart cannot prevail on him i disclaim her influence i know she means not to use it in my favour on the contrary i make no doubt but she will endeavour to irritate sir george against me by misrepresentations her pride makes her wish to have an indigent relation out of the way yet her avarice would not suffer her to enable me to retire and she will make my continuing here through necessity a pretence for still withholding any assistance from me let it be so i would rather submit to the most abject drudgery than owe a wretched dependent existence to such a woman i am sure my brother notwithstanding his resentment if he knew what my situation truly is would not behave with cruelty but my mind is not become so sordid fallen as i am as to turn petitioner for relief but no more my cecilia let not my fate interrupt your happiness november the fourth i have had a letter from mrs falkland filled with the overflowings of a joyful heart she says mr falkland is so delighted with the country he is in and finds his estate capable of such vast improvement that he thinks of making a longer residence there than he at first intended the rather as he has some suspicions that his agent has not acted faithfully by him and as he is sure the extensive plan which he has now laid down will be better executed under his own eye he purposes building a little convenient lodge on a very charming spot in the centre of his estate where he may reside whilst his works are carrying on so that mrs falkland promises herself much pleasure in spending her time partly there and partly in dublin she has already made a large circle of acquaintance and bestows high encomiums on the great politeness and hospitality with which they are received by all the fashionable people in the county she knows not of my mother's death yet in my answer to her letter i cannot avoid mentioning it though i could wish for obvious reasons to conceal it 
Mr. Falkland well knows the ruin of our fortune, and though he cannot suppose while I have a brother living that I am driven to such straits, yet I know what his liberal heart may suggest to him on this occasion, which might lay me under fresh difficulties. I have but just now apprised Lady V of the decease of my dear mother, but have not insinuated any other grief than the loss of a tender parent and an agreeable companion. Indeed, I have carried my dissimulation so far as not to desire this lady to change her address to me, lest, if I gave her my present direction, she might be led to think necessity had obliged me to change my former lodgings for worse. I shall use the same precaution towards Mrs. Falkland, as I have obtained permission from the gentlewoman whose house I lately left to have my letters sent thither. When I go into the country, a general direction to the post-house may suffice." I shall now look out for some little spot to retire to, where I can support life on the cheapest terms. In two months I shall have my small pittance due to me, which I reserve to carry me out of town, and to settle me in my new scheme of economy in the country. If I could persuade my poor Patty to quit me, and see her settled in some eligible situation, I should then have no material concern to attend to but the bringing up my children in the paths of virtue and humility. Humility, that happy frame of mind, on which so much of our temporal as well as our eternal welfare depends. End of section 33